0: Good morning. It's good to see you this morning. Uh, if you're a guest or a visitor, welcome. Uh, I failed to welcome you earlier, but welcome. We're glad that you're here. Uh, my name is Penny, and I'm the pastor here. If, if you are a guest or visitor, and if there are any questions that you might have, or, or if there's anything that we can do for you as a church, please please let us know. Please tell the people around you, or, or come find me. Uh, we, we are glad that you're here, and we uh, want to serve you if we can, so, so welcome. Well, friends, if you have a Bible, uh, please turn to Exodus chapter 2. Exodus chapter 2, and uh, if you don't have a Bible, you can find the passage printed in your order of service. We're going to look at verses 11 through uh, 25 this morning of Exodus chapter 2. Well, a number of years ago, uh, the American Film Institute uh, AFI, they were celebrating their 100th anniversary, and uh, is as a way of celebrating their 100th anniversary, they came out with all these sorts of lists, the 100 greatest films in American film history, the uh, greatest one-liners uh, from American film, the greatest songs and scores, and and one of the lists that they had were the 50 greatest heroes and the 50 greatest villains of American film. Now, I thought that this was pretty interesting. I took Uh, notice of this particular list because one I I like movies but I also like movies that have a great hero right that that man or woman who who defends the weak who loves justice who upholds what is right even when it's hard right the guy who sweeps in and he saves the damsel in distress the the idea of a hero is just it's, it's moving it's captivating Uh, You want to be a hero, right? And we want to be surrounded by heroes. And so I took notice of this and I went online and I looked at who were all the people that they were listing as the greatest heroes and how were they defining it. And, And this is what they said a hero is. A character who prevails in extreme circumstances and dramatizes a sense of morality, courage, and purpose. Though they may be ambiguous or flawed, they often sacrifice themselves to show humanity at its best. That sounds right, that sounds good, right? That sounds like what we all want to be, right? Humanity at its best, courage, right? Defending the weak. And so when I read that definition of what they were looking for in a hero and I saw who the greatest hero in American film history by the AFI was, I wasn't shocked. It wasn't Maximus, it wasn't William Wallace, it wasn't Clint Eastwood or John Wayne or any of their characters. It was actually my favorite literary character, my favorite film character, Atticus Finch. Atticus Finch, not the Atticus Finch of Go Set a Watchman, but Atticus Finch of To Kill a Mockingbird. Atticus is this wonderful character, right? He he stands up for what is right. He seeks justice. He loves his family. He cares for his children. He's such a wonderful character. In fact, I like Atticus so much that Cole's middle name is Atticus. (laughs) Uh, There was debate as to whether it should be his first name or not, but... But, but that's another story. So, um, but we love heroes. We love heroes because that's what we want to be, right? We look at Atticus and fathers want to be like him and children want him as their dad, right? We, we want to be heroes, but we also know that we need to be surrounded by them, that we want to live in a world where heroes reign, where heroes save the day. Pictures of courage and resolve, we, we need them. And in this passage, what we see is a hero. Israel's in need of a hero, and we see this hero coming to the fore, coming in ready to save the day. So let's go ahead and read. We'll begin in verse 11. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? He answered, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill us as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Reuel, he said, how is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him, that we may, he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter, Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So far in this uh, one and a half chapters of Exodus, if you've been with us, we're, we've prepared and we've been readied for Moses to take on this mantle of hero, deliverer of Israel, We've been prepared for it because of the circumstances that surrounded his birth, right? It's a privileged birth that, that his mother, with great courage, protected him and defended him and ensured that he would live. We saw how God's hand was on his birth when the, the boat, the, the basket that he was placed in, it didn't take on water and it didn't go out into the river. That place that should have been death was actually life, how Pharaoh Pharaoh's own daughter drew him out of the water and rescued him from it. And he grew up in Pharaoh's household. Everything is pointing to this special child that would be raised in Pharaoh's house, but he would actually be the downfall of Pharaoh. Everything is pointing to it. That that he is the hero that Israel needs. And in Moses' life, there are many commendable things that arise. And in this passage, we see a number of them. The very first thing that we see about Moses is is that though he was raised in Pharaoh's house, he's not going to remain as an Egyptian, but he's going to identify with God's people. Look at verse 11. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. Did you hear Moses' relationship with Israel? He went out to his people. He looked on their burdens. The Hebrew who was being beaten was one of his people. He's identifying with Israel. Now think about how odd this would have been for Moses. Moses, it says, he didn't do this until he was grown up. So in Acts chapter 7, when Stephen is giving his sermon on that day, right before he was martyred, he's recounting a lot of the events of Moses' life. And of his life he points to this occasion and he says when Moses was 40 years old so he was about 40 when this occurred now we don't know how old he was when Moses's mother returned him to Pharaoh's daughter remember from last week uh, Moses's or Pharaoh's daughter takes Moses and gives him to Moses's mother so that she would nurse him and then after he was weaned she was del- she delivered him back to Pharaoh's daughter so he would have probably been 3 4 five, maybe six. So that means that he would have had 35-ish, 36-ish years of being educated and growing up in an Egyptian house under Pharaoh's rule. He would have been trained by them in the the ways of Egypt, things like that manual labor was something that was to be shunned, that 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 was for the low people of the day. Things like that slavery, slaves were to be treated as though they were the living dead and that they were to be seen as animals and even called donkeys. That these were the things that he would have learned, that the working class were of such low status. He would have been trained to despise the slaves and the Israelite slaves would have been an object lesson of his education. And yet, and yet, he actually identifies with them. When he witnesses their burden, when he sees his fellow Israelite being beaten, he doesn't despise the man, he doesn't despise Israel, he identifies with them. He sees them with compassion. That word in verse 11, he looked on their burdens. That word for looked, it has the connotation of looked with emotion. It's not simply a glance, it's not, it's not just looking upon them and seeing what's going on, but it's, it's seeing ...with depth upon the situation and having great distress. That's how Moses felt. He was raised as an adopted child of Egypt. And yet he identifies with the slaves that he would have been taught to despise. In the New Testament, the author of Hebrews tells us... ...that Moses refused to be called Pharaoh's daughter's son... ...choosing to be mistreated with God's people... And we don't know how he knew. Maybe Pharaoh's daughter told him. Maybe she said, "You're actually a Hebrew." Or maybe he heard whispers of, of the, the, the servants in the, the household talking about how he wasn't really Egyptian, or, or maybe he just had this sneaky suspicion in his heart. We're, we're not sure how he knew, but, but regardless of how he found out he, he did know, and he would identify with his people, with Israel. It looks like he's going to be the hero that they need, right? Moses is looking good right now. We, we like him. He's shunning the privileged upbringing that he had in, in Egypt, and he's going to identify with his people. We like him. He's, he's coming out of the proverbial phone booth with, with a big S on his chest because he's Superman. He's going to swoop in, and he's going to save them and deliver them, right? He, he's looking pretty good. He's going to lead God's people. He's going to be the hero, right? But before he is going to lead God's people out of Egypt, we actually see that Moses, though he will lead, he's actually a character who's terribly flawed. See, He's not a flawless hero. He's actually a very flawed man. We see it coming out in this passage because Moses doesn't simply identify with the people. He's going to act on their behalf. And the way that he's going to act is he's going to commit murder. Look at verse 12. Moses looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Okay, now, now, what Moses is doing, like we like the fact that he's going to defend the weak, and he's going to try to protect the oppressed, right? His, his desire behind it isn't the thing that is the problem, it's, it's the way that he works that desire out that's the problem. Because he's he's going to commit murder. He's he's trying to embody what it is that he knows about God—that God cares about the oppressed, that he despises the wicked, he despises the oppressor. But, but Moses acts in an inappropriate way. He commits murder. Now I do have to mention that that there are those who have tried to um, tried to sanitize what Moses has done. There are theologians and commentators throughout church history who have tried to say that what Moses did was actually good and right. They point to the fact that Moses was a prince in Egypt. And so he had authority to kill anyone he wanted, like a taskmaster, that's not a big deal. Others have tried to say, well, this was justifiable homicide because he was defending this Hebrew. And so he had every right to kill this Egyptian. I think that that's an incorrect interpretation. Now, the problem with this is that uh, the text doesn't tell us, right? The text doesn't come out and say, and God saw what Moses did, and he was filled with, with uh, righteousness, right? That this was a good act. And it also doesn't say that God was angry at Moses, and so he smote him dead, <laughs> right? It'd be a lot easier if he would have said that. But he doesn't do that. So what are we to do? Well, this is a good opportunity for us to, um, to become good readers of the biblical text, You see, when we're in historical narrative, so the majority of the Old Testament and big chunks of the New Testament are historical narrative. And when we're in historical narrative, we very rarely get these ethical statements made about the actions of people. So they do something, and we're not told whether God approves of it or not. And so we have to discern whether it was good or not. So the way we do this is by using contextual clues within the text and seeing the ramifications of the actions that the person perpetrated. Okay, does that make sense so far? Okay, great. So when we do that with Moses, what I want you to see is that there are clues in the text that show us that what he did was actually wrong, that he shouldn't have, have engaged in murder, and Moses knew it. The first thing is before he ever kills the man, it says that he looks this way and that. He's trying to make sure no one saw him, right? It's like when the little kid, the little boy, runs into the kitchen and he looks around to make sure mom and dad aren't watching before he grabs a cookie and wolfs it into his mouth and flees before they can find him, right? Y'all have seen that happen before? (laughs) Why is it that the child is looking? Because they know what they're about to do is wrong. Moses knows what he's about to do he will be guilty of. But it's not just before he acts, it's after he acts as well. What does he do? He hides the man in the sand. He's hiding the evidence. So think about it. If, if his action was right, if he, if he should have murdered this man, why make sure no one saw? If this was commendable, why hide the body? And later in verse 14, when he's trying to break up this uh, argument between two Hebrews, and he says what are you doing and they they push back and say what are you going to kill me too and he is afraid why be afraid why didn't he just say i have nothing to fear i had every right to do that because he knows that what he did was wrong it's not commendable it's erroneous You see, what we're supposed to see from this passage is that as great as Moses will be, and as much as God will use him to lead his people out, he's a flawed, flawed man. We don't just see it with this temper-driven murder, which his temper is going to get him in trouble later. Later in his life, remember, he's going to strike the rock, and God will punish him and not allow him to enter into the land. We'll see that temper show up again, but... But other aspects of the text tell us that maybe he's not the hero we've been waiting for. I mean, his people reject him, and he runs off into the wilderness. And he takes for himself a wife that's a Midianite. Now, the Midianites were a line of Abraham, so it's like a cousin, okay? And he has a son, Gershom. He says, I'm a sojourner in a foreign land. See, Moses is a man without a people. He's a hero with no one to save. Now, God is going to use Moses, but he needs this time in the wilderness. That theme of the wilderness, it shows up throughout the Old Testament. God's people are out in the wilderness and is often in the wilderness when they are alone that God meets with them, that he reveals himself to them. He's going to do that to Moses. He's going to meet with him and work in him and direct him, but But Moses isn't ready to lead God's people yet. And that's not to say that he's all bad. He defended the women at the well, right? He has a clear sense of justice, he desires to protect the weak. But Moses isn't the hero that we need. Moses is a flawed man, and what we and Israel need is actually a flawless hero. That's what we're going to get in this passage. Not from Moses, but from another place. See, the passage continues. Let's move to the end of it in verses 23 through 25. The focus of the chapter has been on Moses, but now it shifts to Israel. And in verse 23, we we read, During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Okay, so the king who wanted Moses dead is dead now himself. But the change in government hasn't changed the situation for Israel. They're still in need. They're still in slavery. And so they cry out, they groan, and they direct their cries to God. That's what the end of verse 23 says. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And that's a Hebrew idiom, came up to God. It's a Hebrew idiom indicating that they are praying, that they are calling out to the one who can help them. I want you to notice something about Israel. They're in slavery. They're in oppression. They're in this horrible darkness. Do you notice that they didn't just go, well, it's been a few years, a couple generations. It'll just be a few more generations. I mean, we just need to deal with it. We've been slaves. That's all we've known, and we'll probably be slaves forever. And so let's just just keep that stiff upper lip and, and just keep moving on. You notice they don't do that. That when they find themselves in this oppression and in this darkness, they cry out. They call out. They don't accept their oppression. They don't accept the darkness that they find themselves in. They long for it to end. They don't resign themselves to an existence of servitude. They lament over their slavery and they call out to God. And God is going to do something. He's going to come to their aid. Look at verses 24 through 25. God hears their cry. He heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Did you hear those four verbs? God heard. He remembered. He saw. He knew. He knew. God heard the cries of his people, and he was not deaf to them. That God saw the pain of Israel and he did not turn his eyes away. He heard their laments and he saw their pain. Listen, I, I don't think that any one of us has ever experienced the sort of pain and bondage that Israel went through that day. Or for that generation or for that lifetime. But that does not take away from the fact that every one of us has experienced hurt and pain, sadness, and sorrow. Every single one of us, and if you haven't yet, just wait because you will because we are broken people surrounded by broken people living in a broken world. We will experience pain. What are we to do? This passage tells us that in the midst of that, in in those times when, when our pain is so deep that we can't even speak of it, we can't even form the words on our lips. Those, those moments when, when it is confined to only the deepest recesses of our hearts and our souls. And we sit there and we wonder, does anyone know? Does anyone see what I am going through? Like those times when that trusted loved one betrays us. When that person who's supposed to care for us, cares for us no longer. We feel our bodies failing. and Hurts taking root. We wonder, does anyone see? Passages like this tell us that there is one who does. That God does see your pain. He does hear your cries. He does know what you're going through. It's not just this passage, but Psalm 34. It's just one psalm. I could have pulled out many. But Psalm 34, the the psalmist David, he's crying out, and he says, The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears towards their cry. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Now, as I read that, I imagine that for some of y'all, you're getting tripped up on that word righteous. Because <laughs> you're sitting there going, I know my sin, and I know my heart, and I am not righteous. So God doesn't hear my cries, and he doesn't hear my pain. Don't, don't let that be a stumbling block, that word. Because David's not talking about moral culpability and he's not talking about ethical perfection. But David is talking about the righteous in the Lord. Those who, because of God's grace, have that righteousness imputed to them. You see, what David is talking about is that for those of us who are Christians, who trust and put our faith in Christ, that that his righteousness is now ours. And so when God looks upon us, he sees Christ's righteousness, not our sin. And so he doesn't call us unrighteous, he calls you saint. And when you cry out to him in your pain and your hurting, he hears you, he knows it. He doesn't turn a blind eye or a deaf ear. Even those things that we can't articulate, he knows them. That's what that psalm tells us. And that's what Exodus tells us, that when we cry out to God, we can have great comfort knowing that he hears us. That he knows our pain, that he hears the cries of our souls. Even when we can't cry out, friends, call out to him in those times of pain the biblical response is not to remain silent the biblical response is not to just ignore it the biblical response is not a stiff upper lip and just move forward the biblical response is to call out to god for help and to invite others to call out on your behalf because god hears the cries of his people and he sees the pain we experience and he's going to act He's going to act. That's what we're going to see, that he actually is going to comfort his people in our time of need. You see, God acts. He sees and he hears, but he is not powerless against our lamentable occasions. He's going to act on our behalf, and he does it by remembering. It's the one of the verbs we heard. He remembered. God's not like man who forgets. The promise he made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, we know those promises, right? We We've recounted them a number of times. The promise that God would bless Abraham and through Abraham, the nations would be blessed. We know that promise, but there's another promise we often forget about in Genesis 15. In Genesis 15, God is speaking to Abraham and he says, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Did you hear that? That is recounting, that is describing what Israel is going through right now in Exodus. That they are in bondage, that they are sojourners in a land that is not their own, but God has not forgotten them. He remembers his promise that he made to Abraham that he will deliver Israel out of Egypt. That they will not remain in servitude. See, when it says remembers, it doesn't mean that God forgot. (laughs) God remembering means that He's going to engage in covenant action on behalf of His people. The promise He made, He's going to fulfill. He saw, He heard, He remembered, and He knew. That's how the passage ends. God knew. But what did He know? It doesn't tell us. It doesn't say it explicitly. The context has to tell us. God knew. He knew Israel and their need. He heard their cry, and he knew exactly what needed to be done. It's kind of like uh, a parent with young kids. You've been at uh, a family's home who has young children. Maybe they're like six months, 18 months, and they're in the back room because, you know, they're taking a nap or whatever. They're in the back of the house, and y'all are eating Uh, you know cookies or dessert or dinner or you're having drinks or whatever you're just spending time and in the midst of conversation all of a sudden you hear a cry from the back of the house but you know it's not your child because you didn't bring your kids or you don't have any and you hear this cry from the back of the house and the mom and dad they just don't even flinch like have y'all seen this they don't do anything they just kind of like huh, yeah and they keep eating right and you're sitting there looking at them wondering like what's wrong with this parent like, are these terrible parents? They're not going to go check. But, but then they realize the, the confusion that you have, and they go, oh, don't worry, it's just Sally. Um, she, she just woke up from her nap. Give her a second, and she'll roll back over and fall asleep. Or, or that's Billy. Honey, honey he's, he's due for a, a diaper change. Can you go take care of it? They knew exactly, as soon as they heard the cry, which child it was, and they knew exactly by the cry what the child needed. Right? And we see it on the flip side, in the extreme, when that cry hits a certain decibel or it hits a certain uh, pitch or octave, right? They, they don't even look at you. They hop up and they go bolting to the back of the house because they know that something is wrong. See, they, they know the cry of their child. And when they hear the cry of their child, they know exactly what that child needs. And it is with greater intimacy than that that God hears your cries. See, he hears the cries of his people, and he knows exactly what we need. He knows exactly what needs to be done. And that's what he's going to do. He's going to do exactly what needs to be done. He's going to provide salvation. I mean, think about those four verbs. Saw, heard, remembered, knew. Those were four things that Moses did. He saw the affliction of Israel. He heard their cries. He knew they needed salvation, but he couldn't do anything about it. He couldn't deliver them himself. Moses saw their need and he took matters into his own hand, but God sees their need. and He's going to save them by his powerful hand. You see, that's what these three verses are doing. They're making us turn our focus away from Israel's situation and their bondage to focusing our attention upon what God is going to do to relieve them of their bondage. That God is the hero that is going to save Israel. He's going to use Moses, but it's God who will deliver them. He is the hero that they and that we need. A number of years ago, Cole was a little bit younger. He was probably about three maybe, and he told me I could share this story. Uh, but when Cole was a little bit younger, uh, he had this terrible fear of these imaginary monsters in his closet. So, uh, so it would go like this on many a night. We would lay Cole down. I would go into his room. I'd give him a kiss on the, the head, on the forehead. I'd say, good night, bud. Sleep well. I love you peace. That's, that's how we end every night, peace. He says it back to me, peace be with you. That, that's what we're saying. So, so I did this on this night. I turn off the light, I close the door, and I walk out, and I go sit on the couch with Kat. We're watching TV, we're listening to music, we're reading, we're talking, whatever it might be, and a few minutes later, we think everything is well, everything is quiet, and all of a sudden, we hear a cry from Cole's room. And so I hop up, go down the hall, I open the door, and there he is, this little man with tears running down his face, afraid of the monsters in his closet. And he's called to me because he believes that in that moment I have the strength and the power to vanquish those evil forces from his room. And so I go over to his closet, I open the door, and I stand kind of halfway in the doorway. So Cole can still see me, but my face is pointing in the door, and I start yelling at the monsters. Don't you come back here again because if you do, we're not afraid of you and we're going to take you and we will rip your heads off and spit down your throat and throw your lifeless carcasses into the compost bin and tomato plants will grow out of your dead bodies. (laughs) And that is the exact response I got from Cole. (laughs) His fear turned to laughter. He wasn't afraid anymore. He wasn't afraid anymore. In that moment, I was strong enough to get rid of those evil forces. And so I sat on his bed, and I looked in his laughing face now, not his crying face, and I said, Bud, you don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be afraid. Why don't you have to be afraid, Bud? Who is with you? And he looks up at me, and he goes, You're with me, Daddy. I'm like, That's right, Bud. In that moment, I was the hero that Cole needed you know, I realized something pretty quickly. I realized that there are going to be times when I'm not going to be there. That he's going to call out and I won't be down the hall. And I realized that there are going to be monsters that, that I'm not strong enough to deal with And situations I can't fix. And so I had to change what I said to him when I sat on the edge of his bed, I looked him in the eye and I said, you're right, bud, I'm with you right now. But bud, there is a day that's going to come when I won't be with you. Where I won't be strong enough to deal with that monster. Where I can't fix that problem. But but you know who will be? Who will never leave you and is stronger than any monster your imagination can come up with? Bud, Jesus is with you. Jesus is with you and he is the one who is stronger than even daddy. Daddy. And he is the hero that you need. Kids, this is the truth. As strong as your dad is, and as caring as your mom is, and as great of their acts of heroism are for you, what you and what we as adults, what child and adult both need, is a hero that's greater than a father or a mother, that is greater than a husband or a wife, that is greater than a sibling or a friend. We need a hero who can deal with all the monsters of this world, who will never leave us nor forsake us, and that's who Jesus is. And that is what God promises he will do for his people. That there is a hero greater than Moses. and It is God himself. I mean, think about that. God heard the cries of his people. He saw their pain. He remembered his promise and he knew exactly what to do. And Many years later, many years later, when Jesus was on the cross, God heard the cries of his son, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he saw the pain that his son, our Lord Jesus, was going through as he was taking our sin and the judgment of God upon himself. And God remembered He remembered what they had promised to do from eternity past and he knew exactly what to do in that moment in order to assure us of salvation. He heard the cries of his son and for a moment he went deaf. And he saw the pain that was inflicted upon him and he closed his eyes and he remembered what they decided to do. He allowed his son to die and bear our sin that we would be saved. Y'all, that is the hero that we need. The hero that is greater than Moses. That's who Jesus is. He saves us from the bondage of sin and judgment. He does what no one else can do. Greater than Moses. and He is the hero that God has given us. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that in our need and in our hurt, in our pain, in our crying out to you, in our calling out to you, you hear us, you see us, you remember, you know exactly what to do. We thank you that you have given us your son, our Lord Jesus, who's defended us, who's gone to war against our enemy and has been victorious. Jesus, you are our hero. You're the one that we need and you are the one who has come. Help us to follow you and to trust you. We pray all this in Jesus' name and God's people said together.